All right, friends, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them with me to Genesis chapter 25 this morning. Genesis chapter 25. Last week, if you remember, we considered in the first half of Genesis chapter 25, the death and the burial of Abraham. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the second half of Genesis 25, and we are going to begin to study the life of Abraham's son, Isaac, uh, and and his two sons, Jacob and Esau. And we're going to do this by, by reading verses 19 to 34. It says this, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paden Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name is called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Friends, what do you do when you feel weak in life? What do you do when you go through difficulties and trials in this life and in this world? How are we as Christians supposed to relate to our own personal weaknesses and to how weak the church can feel in our secular society? Are we supposed to resist all weakness or should we welcome our weakness as part of God's design? Folks, these are big questions. These are big questions for us all because we all struggle with weakness. Maybe you are a mom here this morning, and and though it is Mother's Day, you don't feel like celebrating because you feel like a failure of a mom. Maybe like Rebecca in this story, you want to be a mom, but you struggle with infertility, and so you feel your physical weakness on on a monthly basis. 
Maybe as a Christian here in America in 2021, you feel weak compared to the secular culture around. Maybe, maybe you see the increasing hostility towards Christianity from our society and you wonder how Christians can have more power in the culture around them. Is the church supposed to fight for position and power even as the world does? Or should we welcome these moments when we are reminded of our weakness as individuals and as the whole church? These are big questions. Friends, today's passage can help us. Today's passage is a fascinating part of Genesis that, that helps us to consider how we think about our weaknesses. This text reminds us of how God can use our weakness for our good and for his glory. This text reminds us that, that success and power and position do not look the same for the Christian as they do for the world. And that's okay, church, because God is at work in our lives despite our many weaknesses. Folks, the main idea for our message here this morning is, is simply this. God uses our weakness for our good and for his glory. God uses our weakness for our good and for his glory. And in order to help us to understand that more fully, we're now going to look at three points. We're going to look at three ways to not waste your weakness in this world. Point number one, welcome your weakness. Point number two, celebrate God's sovereignty. And point number three, hunger for heaven. Welcome your weakness, celebrate God's sovereignty, and hunger for heaven. Let's begin with the first point. Number one, welcome your weakness. We don't, we don't like feeling weak, do we? Our culture, particularly here in America, has trained us to hate weakness and to love power and control and position. But as we have already seen throughout the book of Genesis, weakness is inescapable, church, it's inescapable. It's a part of who we are. And, and we see how inescapable our weakness is as we come to verse 19 in this text this morning. As, as we begin to read about Isaac, Abraham's son, I think that many of us think that things will be different for Isaac than they were for Abraham, right? I mean, Isaac is the child of promise after all. And so certainly the child of promise is not going to struggle with weakness in the same way. Certainly God will now quickly make Isaac into the mighty nations that he had promised. At least that's what we hope for. But that's not what we find here. Now look at verse 20 now. It says, And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. She's barren. Just like Sarah had been barren before her, Rebecca is unable to have children. And, and listen, this isn't just a short season of barrenness. No, it was a long time. If you look at verse 20, it says that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. And then you read down in verse 26 that he was 60 years old when she finally gave birth. 20 years from their wedding to their first children. That's a long time. Folks, doesn't that make you just want to groan? More suffering, more pain, more, more waiting, more delay, more sorrow, more tears. Listen, it's not even just more sorrow and pain. It, it, it always feels like our, our sorrow and pain 
is, is so true of us, even as those around us seem to prosper, right? Even as our neighbors seem to get pregnant without even trying, even as our coworker gets the promotion that he wasn't even asking for, but that we were praying for, even as others seem to have zero trials in their lives, while we have dozens of trials in our life. Friends, we can see this comparison right in the text as well. Look, look up at verses 12 to 18. Immediately before our passage today, it introduces Abraham's other son, Ishmael. And what, what does it say of Ishmael? Oh, he has lots of kids. He immediately has 12 sons listed as his descendants. No, no reference to barrenness. No, no need for prayer, no need for faith, no need for patience, no waiting. Ishmael, who is not the child of promise, he quickly has children. And verse 16 even says that his sons become 12 princes. They have position and power in the land. Ishmael's children get all the best scholarships and all the best jobs. Friends, why, why do we seem to suffer so much? Why do we seem to suffer so much even while the world around us seems to prosper? Well, whether those in the world truly prosper more than us or not could be debated, but it does seem clear in Scripture that it is normal for God's people to feel like they suffer more than the world. And so why? Why does God allow us to suffer so very much? Well, church, what we begin to see in this text is that our suffering and our weakness are an opportunity. Our weakness is an opportunity for God to reveal his plans and purposes in our lives in a way that he never would have if we had not experienced that weakness. Look at verse 22. Rebecca finally becomes pregnant, and, and verse 22 says that there was a significant struggle within her womb. It, it says that the children struggle together with each other. Literally, it means that they're smashing against one another. J Jacob and Esau are wrestling in her belly. This was apparently a very violent pregnancy. Rebecca was highly uncomfortable, so uncomfortable that she went to the Lord to ask whether it was even worth it to be pregnant. She says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Why am I here? And then it says that the Lord answered her and said this, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. God says there are twins within her and that these boys are going to be at odds with each other. But then what he says next is very fascinating. God says that one shall be stronger than the other, but the older will serve the younger. In church, in this, God begins to shift our understanding of cultural power and position. The, the, the world says that the stronger son, certainly the firstborn son, would be the one that has position and power, right? C certainly Esau, the, the firstborn, the, the hunter, the, 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 the man's man sort of guy, certainly he will be the one that God uses to bless his people. But that's not what we see here. It says that the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. God, God turns cultural expectations of, of position and power on their heads. God says, those that seem to have power in this world have no power according to my plan. And those who seem to have no power in this world are those that are going to be given the power and the position according to my plan. 
Church, God loves to use means that the world despises in order to display his power in the lives of his people. Church, church think, think about how encouraging this can be for us. Think about how encouraging this must have been for the nation of Israel when they read this story for the first time. When, when the nation of Israel first read this, they, they had just left slavery in Egypt and they are wandering in the wilderness towards the promised land. They are about as weak as you can be. In fact, in Numbers chapter 20, it says that Israel was so weak that Moses even had to ask permission from the king of Edom. Edom is the nation who would be descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. Moses has to ask permission to even pass through the land of Edom. And so Moses, who, who represents the descendants of Jacob over here, says to the king of Edom, who represents the descendants of Esau over there, Moses says, thus says your brother Israel, please let us pass through your land. And do you know what the king of Edom says? No. No not going to happen. You shall not pass through. And he actually came out with his army to stand against Israel. Folks, talk about weakness. Israel can hardly even cross the street without asking permission. That They could hardly provide for themselves in the wilderness. They can't even find a meal. And now Esau's descendants will not even allow them to journey through their territory. Israel is so very weak. And so church, think about the comfort Think about the hope that this passage would have had upon them. Think about the comfort that, that would have been given to them to read that, that from the very beginning, when their father Jacob and Edom's father Esau were still in the womb, God had already promised that the older would serve the younger. Think about the comfort that that would have brought to know that the cultural power standing in front of them, as big and as mighty as they were, as intimidating as they were, they are not the whole picture. Them being denied by Edom was not the end of the story. Church, what we see here is, is true throughout all of God's word. God loves to use what appears weak to the world to display his goodness and his power in the lives of his people. We see it even in the gospel, don't we? Jesus himself, the, 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 the prince of heaven, came down. He was not born in palaces. He was not born in Rome. No, he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. God loves to work through what this world calls weak in order to prove that he is strong. Church, listen, this is why we should welcome our weakness this morning. Because our weakness gives us the humility to see our need for God. Your weakness, your, your struggling, it ensures that you won't miss God's grace in your life. If everything was going easily and, and came easily for you like it did for Ishmael, you, you would likely not feel your need for God. But God allows us to feel our weakness so that we will look outside of ourselves to the eternal hope that is found in him alone. God loves to display his power through weakness. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we are like jars of clay. That's who we are, church, jars of clay. Do you know what jars of clay were in the first century? They were basically first century Tupperware. They, they were unimpressive. They were used for ordinary tasks throughout the day, oftentimes for sewage. Jars of clay were, were weak. They, they cracked. They, they chipped. They often broke. Church, I don't want to be a jar of clay. Do you? I want to be a Nalgene bottle. 
I want to be a Yeti water bottle. Throw me off the roof and I might get a dent, but I will survive. I don't want weakness, but I am weak. Why? Paul says, so that my faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Church, welcome your weakness. Welcome your weakness so that you can also welcome the power of God's grace in your life. Friends, I want to make two quick application points here for us today. I want to make a a parental application and a political application. First of all, parents, welcome your weakness. Moms, happy Mother's Day. We thank God for you. Guess what, moms? You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be Instagram perfect. You, You can be weak. It's okay to be barely surviving the toddler or the teen years or anywhere in between. As you acknowledge your weakness, God, God wants to help you, friend. God, God wants to equip and strengthen you. I love how, how Isaac in verse 21 prays for Rebecca. That should be our instinct as parents as well. We should pray often. Our weakness should also lead us to, to do parenting in community and to benefit from those around us. You're not alone. Welcome your weakness and seek Christ with others. Second of all, I want to make an application to how we think about politics and to culture in our day. Church, it's very clear that this text was written in a way to encourage God's people as they experience societal, cultural weakness before the mighty surrounding nations. Ishmael's 12 tribes and and Esau's descendants who would become the nation of Edom will become direct enemies of God's people. But, But this text helps us to deal with cultural weakness by reminding us that we shouldn't expect cultural and societal position and power for ourselves. We're not called to cultural power, church. We are called to walk humbly before our God. And church, as I was preparing, I just felt like the Lord wanted to speak, maybe a word of correction to certain Christians here who are spending way too much time thinking about politics and cultural issues. Way too much time listening to the news and to listening to podcasts and reading blogs and watching YouTube videos. You you are consumed with how the, the culture is getting worse and worse and it's just breeding this fear and hopelessness in you. Church, I believe that the Lord wants to simply say to you this morning, yeah, yeah, the culture is getting worse and worse, but America is not your home. America is not your hope, and my people were never intended to have cultural position and power. Yes, you will be seen as weak in this culture, but child, that's okay, because as you stop focusing on the politics and the culture and start focusing on me, I will use you and I will sustain you. Church, I think the Lord wants to make some of our hearts happier this week by focusing less on all of that and more on him. Church, let's welcome the place of weakness, wherever that is, and let's learn to trust the Lord in that place. Why? Because God uses our weakness for our good and for his glory. Folks, that brings us to our second point this morning, our second way to not waste our weakness in this world. Point number two, church, celebrate God's sovereignty. Celebrate God's sovereignty. As we learn to welcome our weakness, it it truly does become an opportunity to celebrate God's goodness in our lives. If if our weakness is truly inescapable, which it is, and if we are truly aware of how weak we are, which is severe, then we should wonder to ourselves regularly, 
why in the world would God ever choose to save me? We, we are not strong. We, we are not godly. We, we are not wise. We are not gifted. Why would God want to save men and women like you and me? Why would God choose to save us by his grace? And as we become aware of and, and welcome our weakness in that way, we begin to realize that it is only God's grace and mercy that has chosen to save us. It has nothing to do with us, church. It's not because we're smarter or more godly or look better than the guy next to us. It's only by his sovereign grace and mercy that we're saved at all. And church, that is exactly how our Bibles talk about this story of Jacob and Esau. Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 9 uses this text, Genesis 25, to show us God's sovereign, electing, predestining power. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 9, he says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Church, we don't like our weakness, but our weakness is an invitation for God's sovereign grace to be at work in our lives. And this is the greatest news ever. It's great news that God did not choose Isaac or, or Jacob because he was particularly gifted or godly. He wasn't even born yet. He had proven nothing to God. God chose him only according to his sovereign plan and purposes and his good pleasure. And that's great news. That is great news because it reminds us that our salvation today is entirely based on God's free and unmerited favor. Church, praise God this morning. Praise God that our salvation is not dependent on how strong we were this past week. And it's not dependent on how strong we feel going into next week. Praise God that it's only by his mercy. Only by his mercy when we were saved. Only by his mercy today. And only by his mercy until the day we see him face to face. Church, let's celebrate God's sovereign grace in our lives. God's electing grace should not make any Christian proud. It should make us the most humble people in the world. We should just be standing amazed. God would save a wretch like me. Who am I to receive his care and attention in this way? And so church, let's, let's rejoice in the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no hope but God being rich in mercy and love saved us and made us alive together with Christ. Church, the, the doctrines of grace our Reformed heritage, there is so much comfort in these theological truths. There's so much comfort in knowing that our salvation is based entirely on his grace and not our performance. He gets all of the glory, all of the praise. And so let's never stop celebrating the sovereign grace of God. Friends, that brings us to our third way to not waste our weakness. Point number three, hunger for heaven. Hunger for heaven. 
we should learn to welcome our weakness as a way for God's glory and goodness to be made known in our lives. But listen, church, we do not need to be content with our weakness. We do not need to settle into our weakness and to assume that nothing will ever change about our weakness. No, we have a future hope that we must set our eyes on and that we must cling tightly to. A future hope that we will one day know no more weakness. That we will one day only experience God's power and goodness. Church, we have the hope of heaven. Now, you might wonder where we see the hope of heaven in our passage here today. The story of Jacob and Esau does not seem to say anything about our heavenly hope. But it actually does. And we see it in verses 24 to 34. So Rebecca gives birth to twins. And these two twins could not be more different from each other. Verse 25 says that the boy, the first boy, came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Folks, I have no idea. <laughs> I've got no idea. Did, did Esau come out like, like a little Ewok? Baby Chewbacca? It's unclear whether, whether Esau's skin was red or whether his hair was red. I, I don't fully know. As, as I studied it, it would seem to me that, that Esau was just particularly hairy when he was born and that his hair was of a reddish color. In fact, that, that description actually seems to fit with an ancient Near Eastern prejudice that existed back in that time. It seems from history that there was some kind of prejudice against red-haired people. We, we don't know why, but that seems to be the case. Now, by the way, if you have red hair, we do not hold this prejudice against you here today, which is a really good thing because there are more red-headed people at Redeemer Fellowship than anywhere I've ever been in my life. It's crazy. The Trinzy kids, the, the Lundstrom kids, the Arnold kids, Matt Ernst, they're, they're everywhere. I was, with, I was with the Lundstroms on Friday night. Our family had dinner at their house, and I was talking to, to the little son, Rowan, about his red hair because I knew what I was going to talk about. And he seemed very proud of his red hair and very befuddled by my lack of hair. He did not know what to make of it. Folks, we, we don't know exactly what this description of Esau means, but here's what we do know. Jacob and Esau were very different in appearance and in temperament. They, they had very different personalities. Verse 27 highlights the, the difference of personality. It says, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And so, while Esau is active in the fields doing his hunting thing, Jacob was a homebody. Esau shopped at Bass Sporting Goods. Jacob shopped at Home Goods. It doesn't seem like Jacob did much actively. We learn that Jacob is a, is a quiet man. That, that word quiet seems to mean that Jacob was, was content in himself, that, that he didn't need others around him. He, he was a loner. Esau was bold, outspoken, impulsive, spontaneous, while Jacob seems to be quiet, calculating, isolated, scheming even. They're quite the pair. I wonder where they both fall on the Enneagram scale. But, but what happens next here is so interesting. 
Verse 29 gives us the account of how one day Jacob was cooking stew. So he's a foodie as well, okay? He's cooking stew in the kitchen when his hunter brother comes in. And apparently, apparently Esau is just famished from his time out hunting because as soon as Esau smells the soup that's being made, he says, let me eat. Literally, it means let me devour this stew. Verse 32, Esau says that he's about to die from the exhaustion and the hunger. But folks, how near to death could he really have been? I mean, I get pretty hangry too when I skip a meal. I even say that I'm dying of hunger, but, but I don't literally think that I'm dying. I certainly don't give away my most valuable possession in order to get a simple meal. I don't even really like stew anyway, so that's part of it as well. But, but this is exactly what Esau does. And when, and when he does, Jacob who had apparently been waiting for an opportunity like this to jump at, he says, sure, Esau, sure, I'll give you some soup. Give me your birthright now. Folks, what does that mean? Well, Jacob is saying, give me the position of power in your family, in our family. Give me the rights of the firstborn. Give me your inheritance and your blessing. And what does Esau say? He says, what good are those things to me if I'm about to die? Yes, you can have them. And then it says in verse 34, thus Esau despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. Folks, what's the point of the story? The, the point of the story is to show how short-sighted Esau was and how foolish it was to live in that short-sighted way. Even though Jacob seems to be very manipulative here. The text actually does not indict Jacob at all at this point. The, the text puts the fault entirely on Esau. He despised his birthright. Even though we will see in the chapters ahead that Jacob is a calculating, deceitful, even conniving brother, in this text, his calculation is, is almost commended. It's at least not condemned. And it is Esau who is said to have despised his birthright. Why? Esau's living in the moment. He does not care about the future. Church, we must not live like Esau. We must not despise our birthright. We must not live impulsively in the moments of this life while forgetting about our future hope. Church, don't despise your birthright. Church, through the gospel, you have an inheritance, and it is an eternal inheritance. Don't despise it. Don't live as if it is not true. Don't live as if it is not yours already. Hungering for heaven will lead to greater strength in your life. But hungering for this world like Esau did will lead to greater and greater weakness and sorrow. Hebrews chapter 12 says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Folks, it would seem that, that Esau lived his entire life in this impulsive, even immoral way. He, he despised his birthright and it led him towards, towards greater and greater weakness. It led to greater and greater sorrow. But church, we are called to be different. In the very next verse of Hebrews, it starts talking about heaven. It starts talking about the hope of, of that kingdom and how that kingdom cannot be shaken like we are shaken here in this kingdom. Church, in the midst of our weakness, 
in in the midst of our failure as parents, in the midst of our failure as spouses, in the midst of our failure to be godly witnesses in this culture, in the midst of all kinds of, of failure because of our sin and weakness, in all of it, let's not despise our birthright. Let's remember where we are going and let's live for that day. We should live for the future. We should hunger, not for the comfort of this life, but for the hope of heaven. Do not despise your birthright. Remember who you are according to God's sovereign grace and purpose. Remember where you are going. Hunger for heaven. This world is not your home. Friends, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but, but we like to talk about heaven a lot here at Redeemer Fellowship. We talk about it frequently. Why? Well, first of all, the text often is pointing us forward to that day, but also just because we need it, don't we? Our weakness is so great, and if we focus only on the here and now, there will be great reason for discouragement and despair. But as we remember together day after day, week after week, that we have an inheritance in heaven, well, then, well, then we can keep going through the weakness. Friend, don't despise your birthright. Don't belittle the importance of heaven. Think of heaven. Meditate on the truth of heaven. Remind each other of heaven. Never forget where you are going. Church, what do you do when you are weak? Well, we welcome our weakness as an opportunity for God's grace to be made known. We celebrate God's sovereignty as we consider that he has chosen us despite our many weaknesses. And we hunger for heaven. We set our eyes on the day when there will be no more weakness, no more pain, no more infertility, no more culture wars, no more parenting troubles, no more sorrow. The day is coming, and as we hunger for it, our weakness will be used for our good and for God's glory. 